if you've noticed the past few years, bread has become sort of like a pretentious, um, it's become pretentious and expensive and not, not accessible. You know, whole grains and high quality bread has been made not accessible to the masses to where, man, this is just bread we're making. We need to make high quality, um, nutritious, whole grain bread that's available to people that, you know, maybe have been priced out of the market. This is The Sustainable Baker, a podcast miniseries exploring how climate change is going to affect the things we love to bake. I'm Caroline Saunders, and I'm talking to the plant breeders, the pastry chefs, the climate experts, and the bakers who are thinking about dessert in the time of climate crisis, and about how we could bake more sustainably today to keep the future looking sweet. In this episode, we're talking about how the challenges of climate change may also give us an opportunity to right existing wrongs in our food system. Take bread, for example. The climate crisis is in many ways forcing us back to the drawing board on our daily bread. In the past two episodes, we talked about how climate change is making us re-examine the very grains that we grow, as well as how we turn them into flour. And while we're innovating and tinkering, why not ask a related question? Can we make nutritious bread more affordable and accessible? Well, today we're going to talk about a couple projects aiming to do just that. But Quagmire, we're on fire here. We are going to be the best thing since sliced bread. You know that saying? I've always found it strange because sliced sandwich bread is so ubiquitous in American life, it doesn't seem to merit superlatives. The best symbol of American bread might be the brand whose tagline that saying seems to have evolved from, and which helped make sandwiches the go-to American lunch. All across the USA, 15 million times a day. 15 million times a day. America loves the taste of wonder. Just a little slice of America, wonder day. Wonder Bread and its famous fluffy white loaves was one of the first companies to manufacture pre-sliced bread. In recent years, since the start of the 21st century, Americans have been consuming less and less white bread, but sandwiches remain a big part of our diet. And even whole wheat grocery store bread leaves something to be desired from a health perspective, often containing added sugars and chemical preservatives to keep the loaves impossibly squishy and soft. If there's any single American baked good that would benefit from a makeover while we're rebuilding our food system for climate change, it's sliced bread. We realized that several years ago, um, working with, with bakeries and, and bakers and, and with our listening to our students, but also the, the pantries and others, was um, we can do all these fancy breads and things and they're cool, but, but those aren't accessible to 98 or 95% of our communities. Many people don't equate bread with anything that's not in a plastic wrapper and sliced and soft, right? So, so we're working on that too. And we think that's important is to, to capture more of our community uh, with what we do. That's Dr. Stephen Jones. You might recognize him from a couple episodes ago. He's the director of the Bread Lab at Washington State University, where they're developing regionally adapted and sustainable varieties of grains. But they don't stop at crop breeding. As the name Bread Lab suggests, they also figure out ways to use grains. So in 2019, they launched a project to get more nutritious bread to more people affordably. It was basically to take what we call the approachable loaf, which is a loaf of bread and one thing that started it was I had a loaf of bread from a, a manufacturer that you would recognize the name in the lab. 
uh, and it was three years old and it was soft and squishy still. So it and not moldy. So that kind of grossed us out and it smelled like, smelled like hairspray <clears throat> and it sold for about five bucks a loaf in the store. Um, and it, it just, it did gross us out, but at the same time, we realized that this is what many people are buying, um, for their families. So, so we want to, we didn't want to compete with that. We wanted to offer an alternative for that an affordable loaf. So it, no matter where it is in the country, it'd be $6 or less. So that's in downtown San Francisco or Boston or New York city or San Diego, six bucks or less, many places, three fifty. We wanted to design a loaf that had no non-food in it. So I'm not a fan of eating non-food, but many people eat it and don't realize. So if you buy a grocery store loaf of bread, there's probably at least 20 items that are not food. I'm talking benzoyl peroxide and other nasties. Okay. So no non-food, 100% whole wheat, ideally, but maybe just 60%, depending on the bakers, affordable, so six bucks or less, sourdough so that it stays uh, soft on the shelf for on, on your home shelf for five to seven days without molding, sliced and in a bag. And if you grab it like that, it's squishy and the kids will like it. So that was the that was the goal. No additives, no chemical preservatives, just a short list of ingredients with at least 60% whole wheat or more, depending on what flours a given bakery has access to and can afford. And that's the thing. The approachable loaf isn't designed to be a strict recipe reproduced to a tea by every baker who'd like to take up the cause and produce it. It's more like a rough blueprint, a set of guidelines that can be adapted. We're now in 25 states, and I, I think we're working with probably at least 50 bakeries in this country, uh, plus six countries total. So it's it's being sold in the UK and Nottingham area, and then um, Australia as well, and other other places. Each bakery and retailer that bakes or sells the approachable loaf is like a spoke on the project's wheel and tends to have its own twist, like at Mediterra Bakehouse in Pittsburgh, near where I grew up. Mediterra has been in Pittsburgh since the early 2000s baking bread wholesale, and in the past few years, it also opened two bakeries in Mount Lebanon and Sewickley. I talked with head baker Anthony Ambliotis about why they wanted to bake a whole wheat sandwich loaf. It bothers me, like when I see people eating, like for instance, like Wonder Bread, because like if like most people don't even look at the ingredient list of of stuff like that, and it's like, man, it's full of so much crap. So. You know, like like Steve probably told you, that was a part of this. The plan for this is to be able to like make a loaf that's whole wheat, that's soft and squishy, that could be used like Wonder Bread, right? And it kind of aligned really well with our core principles because, like, like prior to this, we had the same vision and same goal, but just kind of doing it in another way. And that's what I'm talking about, like our our farming. Like the ultimate goal of that was to control the process from start to finish and to more importantly, you know, a lot of like, if you've noticed the past few years, bread has become sort of like a pretentious um, it's become pretentious and expensive and not, not accessible, you know, whole grains and high quality bread has been made not accessible to the masses to where, man, this is just bread we're making. We need to make high quality, um, nutritious, whole grain bread that's available to people that, you know, maybe have been priced out of the market. 
So Mediterra took the approachable loaf blueprint and made their own version. Most of the flour they use for it comes from grains they farm themselves in Arizona and then mill on site in Pittsburgh. The goal of that whole thing was to be able to control the process from start to finish. You're, you're farming, you're milling, and you're baking. So you know, you know the source of your ingredients, you know the quality of your ingredients. And like I said, by doing that, you're able to control the cost a little better. Mm -hmm. and make it accessible to people who otherwise would not have accessibility to, you know, something that, that can be considered um, like a, like a cornerstone in, in a healthy diet is, you know, let's get away from eating processed foods, right? After some experimentation, Anthony and his team arrived at a version of the loaf that's made with 65% whole grain red fife flour, a heritage variety of hard red wheat they grow on their farm. They sell the approachable loaf for $4.99 a loaf, a dollar under the project's limit, mostly on the weekends at their two cafes. Anthony says it's popular with parents for school lunches. But at Mediterra, the idea of the approachable loaf has gone farther than its original intent as a sandwich bread upgrade. It's also inspired changes to other breads the bakery makes. Another thing that's pretty cool that we've done is like, at the time we offered a thousand different products, but like, like for food service, for like restaurants and hotels and stuff, we would make like in diners, we made like a, a basic set of Pullman's, right? So we would make like a white, a wheat and a seven grain. And then, you know, like when COVID hit, it was like, man, let's try to streamline some of this stuff. So what I've been able to do is um, take our standard whole wheat Pullman and kind of merge it with the approachable loaf so that now all of my whole wheat Pullman that go out to restaurants and hotels and stuff could technically be considered the approachable loaf. The simplicity of the approachable loaf makes it a concept that can travel. And it also helped to inspire another bread project that emerged in Seattle during COVID-19. I lived in Seattle for five years, and the year before the pandemic, I joined a meetup group called the Northwest Bread Bakers. My joining was in a way aspirational because I didn't know how to bake bread. I baked cookies and cakes and basically anything sweet, but I had always steered clear of yeast and sourdough. Too intimidating. But I joined the group anyway since I wanted to at least learn more about bread, even if the idea of making it still felt like a bridge too far. The Northwest Bread Bakers were a crew of home bakers that met up mostly on the weekends to do things like get behind-the-scenes tours of local bakeries, hear bread lectures, and even do whole-grain cookie swaps at the holidays. It was educational and wonderful, and for a while, I was fully participating in everything the group did without needing to know how to make bread. But then COVID hit, and as the group's organizer Catherine Curley explains, the programming had to change. This ended up being just a mashup, a confluence of so many factors. So we already have bread, Northwest Bread Bakers, COVID hits. We had, I was ahead of the game. I had like a five month calendar put out of events that we were gonna be doing. And I found myself canceling those. And similar to everybody else, um, the news at the time was just so heavy, so discouraging. And one of the um, news items, the headlines that was so very, very frustrating was about food access and how, the, how COVID was affecting the emergency food system and our food banks were being really disproportionately 
food banks have always had this heavy lift of feeding those who um, um, are food insecure. But there was a big spike in that with the gutting of the hospitality industry. That um, that really affected me in multiple ways. As the dean of the Culinary Academy, I had a lot of students who had one, two, three jobs, part-time jobs in the hospitality industry and went from three to zero overnight, right? And I knew that they were experiencing um, uh, an inability to get food for the first time, perhaps ever. Um, I really caused a lot of sleepless nights. So that was one thing that really bothered me. And I know it bothers a lot of people, but I was really unsettled by it. And then um, another another factor that sort of um, was that I was already very familiar with um, approachable loaves from uh, Wazoo, which was a terrific way of getting grain and helping get um, um um, whole grain um, goodness into the emergency food system. There's another program called a neighbor loaves that supported um, local bakers in a similar fashion from the artisan grain collaborative in the Midwest. And um, I had an opportunity to learn about that. And these items just served as I think little sparks such that I thought, mm, I wonder if there's a way that these Northwest bread bakers who are not professional bakers by and large, although they're serious about their baking bread. But um, I said, I just wondered if there was a combination where we could from our home-based kitchens make a difference. And it turns out that the answer was yes. Catherine saw a way to redirect the energies of all the meetup group members now sitting at home alone in lockdown. She called the new project Community Loaves, and the idea was to bake nutritious bread for food banks in the greater Seattle area that needed it badly. But the first step was simply coming up with a recipe that would work with the flour reality of the early pandemic. You couldn't get flour at that time. In April, when we started this, the, this was when the shelves had been emptied. People were having a tough time getting flour, but we had these local mills. So Catherine and a core team of volunteers workshopped a recipe using flours that mostly came from mills in the nearby Skagit Valley, like Karen Spring Mills and Fairhaven Mill. So the, the honey oat pan loaf. When we first started, it was one formula. It was, and, and today that's the classic because we have three versions of it. But when, when we, um, and we, it took nine of us, it wasn't just, it wasn't mine. We all worked together to create this one inaugural formula. What was important to us? It was that it um, would be delicious. Nobody's going to eat anything or enjoy something if it's not delicious, but that it also um, um, used local ingredients wherever it was possible, and that it had a high percentage of whole grains. Now, what that meant, we weren't entirely sure. We played with the formulas. We did 70% whole grain, 60, 50. And we were right in it there with that oat, the oatmeal helps make this about 60% whole grains. The oatmeal is intentional. That porridge gives it... Um, um, a really nice crumb and moisture and flavor, right? And flavor counts. So it, what's, it makes it um, delicious. We did want it to be easy. And I have to say that the next generations of our formula 
So it started with sourdough and a little bit of yeast, um, but we introduced a yeast only version so that we could invite more bakers into the to the community and let them uh, make an impact. We created a formula that was just as yummy. And then we also have a purist for those who are like, why do I have to use any conventional yeast, right? So, so now we're an equal leavening opportunity organization, right? The logistics of the project alone were astounding. In the beginning, a few volunteers would drive an hour and a half up to the Skagit Valley, buy and bring back a bunch of 50-pound bags of flour, and then split them up into Ziploc-sized portions to divide between a bunch of Seattle bakers. All I had to do was come to an appointed meetup spot for my weekly local flour ration. We'd then get an email reminding us to bake on Friday or Saturday so the loaves would have time to cool, and then we'd set out our bags of bread Sunday night for a coordinated pickup. And so I had a route, and I would like, okay, I'm going down to Mercer Island, now I'm going over here, now I'm going over here, I'm going over here, and there were 15 of us, right? And then it got a little bit more, and I had my sons helping. I'm like, hey, will you please go drive over and you go get these? So then my displaced college boys were driving and grumbling about going out and doing all this. And and we just continued to grow and it got more and more difficult to do that. And so then I was like, well, and I would be nervous at each one of our new milestones. I thought, oh, these bakers, they'll you know, now that I'm not, now that we're not offering the personal pickup service and they have to walk or drive their loaves to a hub, will they do it? And they did each time because their own commitment and interest in making um, a, an impact by delivering, by having fresh baked bread at the, the food banks was motivation, as it turns out, was motivation enough. For a secret bread novice like me, the Community Loaves Project was the perfect way to dive in the deep end. There were Zoom workshops on how to follow the recipe and how to shape a loaf and how to troubleshoot getting your dough to rise. Soon, my breadless staves were behind me. And then miraculously, from dozens and then hundreds of Seattle kitchens like mine, the group began working like a distributed commercial bakery, churning out hundreds of pretty consistent loaves per week to send to area food banks. So, and it's still really important that consistency helps the food bank. I mean, it just feels, it feels uh, better when you're a client at the food bank that every loaf looks approximately the same. They're home crafted. So they're not all um, Pinterest perfect or Instagram perfect, right? They are from the home. They are from the heart. But the um, opportunity for bakers to continue to hone those skills and become better bakers while using really great ingredients, while also having a nutrition consistency to the loaf. So it's not just local flours, it's not just baking skills, but it's this idea that we are delivering something that's nutritious and delicious into this emergency food system. Some of our food banks um, get a lot of bread. But what they'll say is that they don't get good bread and they find our bread good bread. In fact, I have a quote and this was James Pab, James Pabniak of Hopeling Shoreline said this, we partner with community loaves because the bread is delicious and the natural and high quality ingredients are things we rarely see in the bread donated to our food bank. 
And then we had another client of Issaquah um, reach out to their food bank manager and say, I'm really surprised. First of all, I love this bread. And second, I'm really surprised that it doesn't cause my blood sugar to spike like other bread. And now this isn't something you can take to the the medical community. This is not a this is not a, a message to all diabetics. But because our lo- our loaves have more fiber, they are less likely to cause a spike in um, blood glucose, and that's really gratifying. And it's intentional. These loaves have more nutrition and more fiber by nature by um, the fact of the ingredients that we're using. The Community Loaves Project has grown to nearly a 1,000 volunteer bakers, has 46 hubs across Washington and, more recently, Oregon and Idaho, and was even featured on the Today Show. They've incorporated into a nonprofit and have started to see interest from elsewhere around the country. And I'm hoping that we can um, help foster that or even help be the, you know, maybe sort of the franchise model helps them out. We can be the engine to help them because it's taken a lot of work to get the infrastructure in place to support this. And I think other um, cities could leverage this infrastructure if we can help them figure that out. By the end of 2021, Community Loaves is hoping to donate 30,000 loaves of bread to Seattle-area food banks. Like the approachable loaf, it's another example of how, in a food system still dominated by centralized production, better sandwich bread can happen from the bottom up, which gets back to Dr. Jones' bread philosophy. As I mentioned at one point, as, as I worked in the commodity system as a breeder, and that was for almost 20 years, and I I thought, well, I'll just fix this one. You know, we'll we'll make things more equitable and just and you know <laughs> better. And that didn't work, right? So so our strategy now is um, not to fix anything, but to offer alternatives and, and parallel paths that people can go on if if they so desire and they, and there's a want there. The key again is for us is to make it affordable, right? Is to not have we don't work, we don't use the words niche or boutique, or we don't even use local. Um, we, we try not to at least, right? We, we embrace those things, but it, it's really important for us to, and, it, and it's, it's super radical, we believe, to produce good food where everyone in that chain is respected and it's affordable. And these projects are also an example of how climate change opens a door for us to re-examine baking and food more broadly, as journalist Amanda Little explains. So there's all kinds of an opportunity to not only adapt to and sort of prepare for these increasing pressures, but to restore and sort of um, redress a lot of the existing problems with industrial agriculture. Um, and I, so I, I do think that um, that climate change in some ways can force us to really um, uh, rethink um, a lot of the existing problems in our uh, food systems um, to, to build resilience, to really lift up and restore um, local food um, production and regional food production. Uh, and, you know, distributed food production rather than centralized food production. Um, There's an amazing amount of creativity and ingenuity in uh, the responses, not just from farmers, um, but uh, from 
um, scientists and architects and engineers um, and software developers all thinking about how we can have a more nimble, a smarter, a more intelligent, a wiser approach to food production. So if you'd like to make your own whole wheat sandwich bread, Catherine and the Community Loaves team were kind enough to share the recipe for honey oat pan loaf with us, which you can find in the latest blog post on sustainablebaker.com. Now, since this is the last episode in this mini-series on baking in the era of climate change, I want to recap some of what we've learned about how we can bake more sustainably. The first lesson you'll remember is that there are some especially climate-sensitive foods that we bake with often, like vanilla and other spices. And one way to help ensure the continuity of those delicious foods is to buy products that support sustainable farming practices and fair prices for growers. Don Seville had this advice when you're shopping for vanilla or things like ice cream that might contain it. So there are companies who in those relationships are either buying fair trade certification, rainforest, organic. Um, those all help give some premium. Um, and they're all investing in ways in which farmers can improve their production and earn more money from vanilla. We also learned that it's important to reduce food waste in your baking habit, which, if you're a bread baker, can mean making better use of your sourdough discard, as we learned from the zero-waste chef Anne-Marie Bonneau. So I started coming up with recipes to use up the discard. And I think even if you don't bake the bread, it's worth it to have a starter just to make things with the discard and the starter itself. And we heard that even for the butter devotees among us, it's a good idea to bake plant-based, which you can often do by making some really simple swaps in things like chocolate chip cookies or banana bread or whatever you're making. But the soy milk, you can see, is also five times less greenhouse gas intensive than the milk, right? And so and there's so many great alternative milks out there. There's um, cashew milk, um, so creamy, and there's um, hazelnut milk and, and almond milk, of course. Um, so there's a lot of alternatives for folks. Um, and I think, um, if you really want to get, um, super low, um, carbon in your, in your baking, um, definitely go for those alternative, um, milk products. You can also help out the climate when you're baking by using diverse grains in breads and even in cakes and supporting the development of new climate adapted grains, many of which you can find from regional mills or buy online. When it comes down to it, the reality is climate change may change baking, just like climate change may change the rest of our food system. It's possible the ingredients we bake with today might shift. What's more certain is that we could lessen future climate impacts by baking differently today, with more plants and more whole grains sourced responsibly and used to their fullest. But I'll end by saying this. We shouldn't fear this evolution. Baking has always been a certain kind of alchemy, making magic out of whatever ingredients were around us, even as what was available changed. Part of the beauty of any cuisine, really, is figuring out what comes next and how to make it delicious. So I think once you get into it, it's kind of, and you know baking, I mean, once you bake, part of it is the discovery and the joy and the, you know, it, it may not work, well, you, fix, you, you adjust, right? So... Baking's a pretty glorious thing. 
This is the Sustainable Baker Podcast. A big thank you to Dr. Stephen Jones of The Bread Lab, Catherine Curley of Community Loaves, Anthony Ambliotis at Mediterra Bakehouse, and to all the guests I spoke with for this special series. All these people are doing spectacular work across agriculture and milling and baking and history and food system reform, and I've linked to lots of their work and their books and their Instagrams in the series reading list on sustainablebaker.com. I also want to thank you all for listening to the mini-series. I'm so glad you tuned in. Bake well, everyone, and bake sustainably.